An architect wants to build two identical houses for his family. One in the hills, one in the mountains, and one at sea. And so he spends several months um, putting his full effort into these drawing up some plans. He thinks about every detail. Like an artist, he pours his heart into the plans for these homes. This is where this family will spend many years and, and decades. When he's finally satisfied with the plans, he then hires two different framers to, to frame the houses in. The first framer takes the plans and meticulously looks over them, asks to get together with the architect and say, hey, can you explain this to me? Asks some questions. And then he begins to build, checking his work with the plans at every step. His work uh, isn't perfect. He makes some mistakes. He he makes some wrong cuts. He has to backtrack and take some things apart and put it back together. But ultimately, he trusts the guidance of the plans. And in the end, the framing passes code, and, and it displays the meticulous design and good intention and purpose of the architect. The second framer trusts himself and the vast knowledge and experience he has is in framing homes. He takes a quick look at the plans, spots a few mistakes that he can fix, a few areas of improvement, and gets to work right away. He's confident the contractor will be pleased with his work, especially his, his creativity and ingenuity. But when he's finished, he finds that there are some problems he hadn't foreseen. Uh, some of those mistakes were actually intentional features that the architect had built into his home. The framer couldn't see the purpose for them and didn't trust the design and intention of the architect, and so he had modified the plans. Plans can be a great thing. Whether we're talking about building a home, constructing a Lego set, planning for a wedding, running a business, plans help us. Plans give us direction and purpose. Uh, they also give us some satisfaction that we are going on the right path, that we can confirm over and over again as we go, and they give us some confidence that our work will be worthwhile and not futile. Of course, we're not only talking about home construction here, but life as human beings in this world. God is the master grand architect and designer and, and owner, and he has put all of his wisdom and good purpose and intentionality into creating the home that is this world. And he has created us, he's created human beings as the pinnacle of his creation efforts, called his handiwork. Humanity is the thing that most reveals his wisdom and good purpose. And in creating us, he has not left us to our own to figure out who we are and what we're about, our identity, our purpose, but he has given us the plans, if you will, for living as human beings and living our lives according to his plans, to their intended design, gives us this purpose and direction and gives us some satisfaction and confidence and ultimately leads to our greatest thriving and joy. Of course, we can reject his plans and of course we do reject his plans and his design all the time. We see areas that we think need some modification, some areas that perhaps he has overlooked, and so we, we twist it. 
or perhaps we doubt that he is good and that his plans are ultimately for our good and we maybe his design doesn't lead to thriving and joy maybe we know better and this brings up one of the biggest questions we have to consider as we continue on this short series talking about identity and gender and sexuality Our human identity and purpose built in, built into the system, built into our world, built into us by a loving and good architect? Are they already there for us to discover or our identity and purpose ultimately for each of us to determine for ourselves? Put it another way, is there an objective, universal, external to us identity and purpose for humanity? Or are these things subjective categories that we must discover inside of ourselves? And I realize that I'm using some kind of big words here, but this is a fundamental question and, and issue that we all wrestle with from a very young age. Right? From a very young age, we begin to wonder and we begin to ask, who am I? Really, where do I belong? Do I belong? Do I have value? What is my purpose? What What are we here for? What is my life for? And so today we're going to talk primarily about identity, but then draw some applications for understanding gender and sexuality. Because the conversations and the the disagreements and the the experiences of gender and sexuality in our world today are really conversations and experiences and, and disagreements about identity and about purpose. And, and, and we're not going to get very far if we just stay on this level of what does God say about gender and sexuality without talking about what does God say about who we are and what we're for. So before we turn to God's word, Let's consider how identity is understood by the world we live in. Our world increasingly understands identity not by anything outside of us, anything external to us, but by what we find inside of us, by inward psychological terms, realities. What I feel and desire inwardly is who I am at the deepest level. And so traditional categories, the way, way that the world has traditionally understood identity, like um, what family do I belong to? Wh- what career do I have? What country do I belong to? What is God do I belong to? And all of these things, these have a less and less role today in determining re- identity and personhood. And because we define ourselves inwardly according to our desires, and because sexual desires are among the strongest desires we experience, Identity has taken a largely sexual turn. It's understood in relation to sexual desires and to one's experience with gender. But we have to ask why this is. Why have we come to understand ourselves and personhood largely in inward psychological terms? This is a fairly new phenomenon. This is not how humanity has always understood themselves. And this has come about largely because we have rejected any notion of external, universal, objective identity to what it means to be a human 
and objective purpose for human existence. There's no set standard, no standard definition for who we are and for what we're about. And so we must create these things ourselves. We must figure out and decide for ourselves what our identity is, what our purpose is. And so we live in a world that is defined largely by individualism, subjectivism. The identity I construct for myself might be different than yours. My purpose in life might be different than, than yours. There's no universal thread tying all of these things together. This also means that there's no universal objective morality and ethics that we all agree to. No external to us conviction of what is right and wrong. Now, if you tie all of this up, you put it all together, um, we find something that is summed up really well in a song by Pharrell Williams in his song, Happy, which I'm sure you've all heard. Clap along if you feel like happiness is the truth. It's actually an amazing summary of the conviction of much of our world. Happiness is the truth. Happiness is this inward experience or emotion. Truth, historically, is something external to us that exists, whether we agree with it or not, that is objective and universal. But here, now, in our world, truth is a subjective feeling. Reality is determined by happiness. The thing that we must give ourselves to the most is this feeling of happiness. And everything else in life must submit to our individual pursuit of happiness, including God, including notions of truth, and all of that. Now, to be clear, this is the world that we all live in and breathe in every day. Like, this is not just, like, out there, I'm completely separate from this. No, we, we all live and breathe in this world, and we uncritically adopt elements of this all the time without even realizing it including in the church. So with that backdrop for contrast, let's look at a biblical understanding of identity and purpose. We're going to look at creation and the fall and draw out some applications for this particular sermon series. So turn to Genesis 1, starting at verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Jumping ahead a couple of verses. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Okay, notice a few things. First, God is a creator, and we are not. We are part of his creation. This is the first building block that we must understand in understanding who we are. We are not the creator, we are not the architect, we are not the designer, we are not God. We are not autonomous little kings ruling over our own little kingdoms distinct from God's rule. 
creating our own rules and our own plans and our own purposes. No, we live in God's world. Second, humanity is created in the image of God. So just as kings would place their image, their likeness on coins or on statues around their kingdoms to show that this belonged to them, so God does similarly with us. He imprints his image on us as a way to say, we are his. We belong to him. This is, this is the reason all human beings have some built-in dignity and worth. This is the ultimate reason murder is wrong and is in a completely different category than killing animals because human beings bear the image of God. This is why any, um, any uh, attempt to dismiss and uh, keep dignity and honor and worth from someone is wrong. Bullying is wrong. Treating someone with contempt is wrong. Gossip and speaking evil of someone is wrong. Racism is wrong. But this also tells us something about our purpose. Like, what are we here for? Well, we're here for, in part, to reflect and display and give witness to mirror Related to this word image, right? To mirror and display something of God on this earth. Colossians 1.16 sums up what the whole Bible teaches. All things were created through him and for him. So he is not only the creator of things and then he kind of lets creation go to figure out its own way, but we were created for a purpose for him. We ultimately exist for something much greater than ourselves and our own happiness which doesn't mean our happiness doesn't matter. But it is not ultimate. We were created for him, for his joy and pleasure and glory. Third, we see that imaging or representing God includes male and female distinctions. So if you notice the parallels in verse 27, the phrase, in the image of God, he created him, is replaced in that third line by male and female, he created him. So to be created in the image of God includes both male and female imaging of God. There is something about being created male and female and not just as unisex or sexless humanity that matters in representing God, that helps us to understand God. And so this means that these categories cannot be done away with or merged together or just made fluid. No, we must insist that the creation of male and female is very good, as God himself says here. Now, what is the very goodness of distinguishing between male and female? Well, one good purpose is certainly the bringing together of male and female in marriage, and the result in childbearing and child raising and society building and the like. Another is the general ways that men and women differ tends to highlight different aspects to God and help us to, un us, us to understand God better. So just a couple examples. Childbearing is something that God ordained for women and endows mothers with an innate compassion for children, right? That helps us understand God's compassion. Likewise, I think that God ordained in general for men to have strength 
and to be able to protect and defend others, including women. And I think this tells us something and is meant to tell us something about God's strength and will to defend and protect. Now, we need to be careful in distinguishing differences to not be merely adopting cultural attitudes and, and convictions on these things and then saying, well, that's what the Bible intends by this. We can celebrate diversity among the categories of men and women. For example, some men are quite emotional, and that's okay. Some are not. Some women are very content to, to stay home and do the primary work of, of homemaking. Some are the primary breadwinners outside of the home. And we should be careful not to go further than the Bible does in defining gender roles and stereotypes. However, the categories of male and female as two distinct ways to be human and image God are good and are from God. Fourth and finally, God's creation is very good. God's original creation and his purposes for it are and were very good. And so even post-fall, which we're about to get to, even post the entrance of sin into the world and the, the breakdown of everything, our role is akin to, is like, as one author puts it, art restoration. Art restoration. So in art restoration, um, you look, so imagine a picture that's been destroyed and, and marred and faded over time. In art restoration, you look for the author's original design and intent, right? And you are trying to restore that. You trust that Picasso or whoever knew what they were doing in designing this piece of art. You don't say, well, I don't really like how they went about this, so I'm going to start afresh. And No, that wouldn't be art restoration. God's design and purpose for his creation is very good. His design and purpose for us as humans is very good. But obviously we can't stop there because we, we look around, we look inside of ourselves, and we know that not everything is very good. So let's jump to Genesis 3. Consider the fall. Starting in verse 1, we'll read through verse, verse 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So what we see here is are two questions behind all sin, behind every sin. Can God be trusted, and is God good? Can God be trusted, and is God good?
good. The serpent tests Eve first by, first by questioning God's word, God's trustworthiness. Did God actually say? And then Eve responds by partly saying what God said, but then by modifying it slightly. God hadn't said, neither shall you touch it. She adds to God's word. And of course, this is a primary temptation for us to this day. Has God really said, can God be trusted? Has God left us a reliable and authoritative record of himself? Or are we up to our own to figure out who God is and what he wills? Now, just a brief look at Scripture reveals that God desires for us to trust him and his word. That God intends to be, to be faithful, to be known as faithful, for us to be confident in his faithfulness. Proverbs 30, every word of God proves true. Which, which implies that maybe sometimes we won't know, it, it won't seem like God's word is going to come true. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Refuge in him, him and his faithfulness and his word. Or Psalm 12, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. I mean, if God was, did not intend for us to trust him, if God did not intend for us to have a reliable word of revealing him to, to trust in, scriptures like this would be meaningless. The word of the Lord is pure, pure words like silver refined in a furnace, purified seven times. And then Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Do not lean on your own understanding, but trust in the Lord with all your heart. God wants our complete trust, and he has given us his pure and trustworthy and sufficient word. But we need more than that. We also need to know that God is good. That is the other lie that Satan tempts and, and Adam and Eve buy into. Is God really good? Eve saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Again, this temptation is certainly still with us today. Is God good? The idea that, the, the, the suggestion that God must be keeping something good from me. That God himself is not truly good and doesn't really love us. And so much of the confusion and the struggles around gender and sex hinges on whether or not we believe God to be good. If God is good, then the temptation to have or do what he forbids is a mirage. That, that, that thing that seems so desirable and life-giving is actually despairing and frustrating and leads to death. Of course, there is momentary pleasure in sin, as we all know. But it does not lead to the deep and lasting and satisfying and eternal joy and peace that God wants for us. 
Now, I think part of our difficulty, both in the church and in the world, is that we haven't sufficiently reflected on the on sin, on the fallenness of the world. Many of the difficulties and disagreements around these issues of identity and gender and sexuality are due to very shallow and insufficient views of fallenness. And this is true often in the church as well. So the Bible gives us three categories for understanding our fallen world. And I think these go a long way to pushing us in the right direction in how to have these conversations, how to understand ourselves, how to live in a fallen world. So the Bible gives us three categories, personal sin, the, the fallen nature of the world in general, and Satan. First, sometimes we deal with the results of our own sin. We actively push and knowingly push against God and his good design. For example, we not only feel the temptation to covet or to lust, but we give in to these things. We willingly give in to those desires, and we experience the, the chaos that results. We not only feel the temptation to be bitter and discontent, but we willingly give in those things rather than trusting God. And again, experience the chaos that results. On the issue of gender and sexuality, this helps explain some, some, not all of what we we face. One example is the author Rosaria Butterfield, who you may know, uh, she was a former, or she was a lesbian who had a radical conversion and is now married to a male pastor. For her, lesbianism was the logical end of radical feminism. Men are evil, men are the source of oppression, and so I'll re- take that to its logical end and reject men and masculinity in every way possible. So her journey wasn't merely about feeling attraction or fighting desires inside for other women. It had conscious decisions that she would say in the end were in rebellion against God. She's written a number of books. She writes in one of them, stepping into God's story means abandoning a deeply held desire to make meaning of our own lives on our own terms based on the preciousness of our own feelings. Stepping into God's story means abandoning a deeply held desire to make meaning of our own lives on our own terms, based on the preciousness of our own feelings. And we can resonate with this, right? Much sin and much sexual sin is about breaking boundaries, is about self-rule, is about doing what is devious for the sake of self-rule. How many songs do you know, have you heard, that are about doing what is wrong, feeling so right? Like, our sin nature finds something pleasurable in revolting against divine authority. But this doesn't fully explain our struggles in this world, including with gender and sexuality. Sometimes we deal with the results of a fallen world in ways that are not directly connected to particular sins that we have committed. You can think of uh, Paul's thorn. Whatever it was, it's a good thing I didn't finish that sentence. Whatever it was, it was a weakness that he had to deal with. But it wasn't directly 
connected to some sin in his life. And despite his prayers, fervent prayers to be free of it, God had other purposes. And what does God say? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Likewise, we deal with fallen fallenness in our bodies. We, we, we deal with physical weaknesses and inabilities and disabilities, either from birth or through an accident or just gradually over time. We deal with sinful desires inwardly and out-of-balance emotions, chemical imbalances, with not understanding why we do what we do. As Paul says in Romans 7, we also deal with being affected by our past in ways that we don't always understand, especially when there's been abuse or other traumatic experiences. And then even intellectually in our minds, we deal with fallenness. We deal with inaccurate views of ourselves. We interpret the world and, and, and our experiences in flawed ways. Our thinking is not completely reliable. This is why we need God's word. And so this reality, this fallenness, gives us another framework for understanding our lives in general, but also understanding struggles in the realm of gender and sexuality. Finding sexual desires to not line up with what God says is good, right, and true, whether that's in a same-sex attraction or battling temptations in singleness or in marriage. Finding our inner sense of gender to not line up with our God-given biology. I think we need to reject the temptation to say that such experiences are always the result of some specific sin, and if you just deal with that sin, the struggle will always go away. That didn't work for Job when his friends came saying that message. You have, there must be some sin in your life, and if you just fix that, of course this will all go away, and that didn't work. Sometimes there is certainly personal sin, but much of the time there is personal sin that needs to be dealt with for sure, but sometimes we just might be dealing with the weaknesses and temptations and brokenness of living in a fallen world. And we also need to reject the temptation to imply that struggles in these areas, these kinds of battles or temptations are worse than others. To imply that these temptations should be kept to oneself. That the church is a place that you can be honest about some sins and some struggles, but not those ones. That we'll come alongside you and, and support you and show you grace and compassion for some battles, but not those ones. And then finally, we have to factor in the devil as well. So sometimes what we're dealing with is what Eve dealt with. Satan whispers, did God really say is God really good? We are tempted to think, to doubt God's word and to doubt God's goodness and to think that we know better the path to life and joy and happiness. And that if God really loved us, he would want us to have fill in the blank. So where do we go from here? We are special creations of God endowed with dignity and worth, and yet we are marred through and through. Um, as Paul sums up, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? 
we have two options. Option one, we reject what God says about us. We refuse to accept his plans, his design, his purpose. We think self-rule is better than submitting to God's rule. Independence is better than dependence. We think we know better than God, and so we do what is right in our own eyes. We may be like the second framer, take a quick look at the plans, say, well, there's some good parts, there's some, God, you obviously didn't look over these very well, think I can do better. And this is nothing new, this is not something our culture just discovered. This was a story in the garden, this was a story in the book of Judges, where everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and this is a story, our story, apart from the grace of God. Which leads to the second option. And the second option is we see that the fall is not the end of the story. That Genesis 3 is not the end of the Bible. That God's purpose is not to leave us feeling shameful and guilty and under the weight of sin, but to actually give us life and life abundantly. To give us joy, to give us freedom, to effectively deal with our sin and guilt and, and all of the consequences of it in the only way that actually works. If you think about it, Jesus is the only one who had the right to say, God, I don't deserve this, which is what we want to say in our wrestling and and experiencing of the fallenness of this world, right? God, I don't deserve this. This isn't making me happy. God, this seems unjust. Jesus is the only one who actually had the right to say that. God, this is unjust. He was the only one who had the right to stay separate, completely separate from all of the brokenness and the suffering and the weight of sin in the world, and yet he willingly entered into it. He bore our sin and guilt in his body on the tree. He bore all of our rejection of God's plans, the myriad of ways that we elect to rule over ourselves rather than submit to his rule. And the cross shows us the extent of our sin, how evil it really is. This is why coming to Christ truly involves repentance. You can't trust in him and his death without acknowledging the seriousness of your sin. There there, there is no truly coming to Christ without some repentance because you see that he had to die for us to be accepted. And yet, at the same time, the cross shows us, and we have to see both of these to truly come to God, to truly be drawn to Him. The cross shows us the extent of God's love for us, the glorious grace and goodness that God intended from the very beginning. That from before time began, God planned to draw us near to Himself, not to leave us in our sin, but draw us near to Himself through the humble and sacrificial death of His Son. And what the cross does, what the gospel does, is answer the question, is give us the greatest answer to the question, is God truly good? Right? Every time we are tempted to doubt, God, are you truly good? And we, we face that, we, we, we ask that, or whether we put it in our words or not, we find ourselves wondering, God, in this moment, are you truly good? God, in this experience, are you truly good? No. The cross 
the humble, loving, sacrificial giving of God for rebellious sinners and evildoers like us answers the question, is God truly good? As we saw earlier with, with the kids, Paul, Paul says in Romans 8, if God hasn't spared even his own son, how will, he, how will he not give us all good things? So like God went to the greatest lengths to be generous and give us the most costliest gift. How will he not be good in everything else? Why would he do that to show his goodness, but then not be good in all of these seemingly lesser, easier, smaller things? So coming to God through faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior gives us a radical new identity. We come to see and to know that God is for us, that God is with us, that he's on our side, he's working all things together for our good and his glory. And, and in this, his, his affections are not mild towards us. He is not begrudging in this. No, he, he is rejoicing over us, singing loudly over us. So our identity as human beings flows first and foremost to, uh, from our relationship to Jesus. Are we found in him and found to be beloved children, sons and daughters of the king? Or do we continue to reject the grace that is in him and live for our own glory and live to rule over our own kingdoms? There is a lot more that we could cover. This is a massive topic, and there is much the Bible says on it. But I want to draw out a few applications, like we did last week, from what we've seen for the topic of, of this sermon series. Uh, first, a word about the nature of desires. Our world tends to one of two extremes when it comes to desire. Either they are entirely good and should be embraced all the time, or they are the, the root of all evil, and you need to reject desires, as in many Eastern religions, which have become quite popular in, in the West. And I, and I think we tend to, many people, most people, tend to oscillate between these two extremes, right? Like, you give in to desire fully, you find that then to be empty and not satisfying, and so, well, well satisfaction must be in self-control and, and not giving in to desires. Desires are bad, and then you find that doesn't really satisfy either. But neither of these is the Christian view. Desire is not inherently evil. Desire is a good thing. Um, desire is meant to awaken us to the, the, the immense, um, indescribable joy and delight that it is in God and that God wants for us. You probably have heard the, the C.S. Lewis quote about our desires not being too strong but too weak. Like our desires for all of these things here on earth are just meant to point us to desire for, for God. It's like we're, he says, we are children playing in the mud when God has offered us a, a vacation or a holiday at sea. But desires can easily become sinful. A, when we desire something we haven't been given, which is covetousness, which is lust, which is idolatry. B, when the intended end of our desires is sinful, as in lust or bitterness, like even if we don't go through with it, the intended end is sinful. Or see when our desire rules our lives, when desire rules our lives as a God. 
and we end up breaking the first and second commandment, not worshiping God, but worshiping our desires. And so the problem is not that we have strong desires, but that our desires are often directed towards the wrong things. And you can think of Jesus. Was Jesus free of desire and emotion? No, but his desires were directed appropriately. Second, a word about identity versus experience. So the push today is to define ourselves by our experience, to see ourselves as most significantly through our experience. But does this really help? Don't we actually need an identity outside of our experiences to help us work through our experiences? If our experience is that, is that we've gone through a tough divorce or that our parents have gone through a tough divorce, we actually need to know that that is not the last word on us. That that is not who we are fundamentally. If our experience is having gone through some trauma or suffering or oppression, we need to know that that's not who we are, that there's more to say about us so we don't live the rest of our lives with a victim mentality. And if we find ourselves with different sexual desires or gender understanding than the majority of the populace, populace, we need to know that that is not who we are. Fundamentally. That is not the last word about us. That is not our identity. Now, none of this is to deny or minimize the, the, the meaningfulness and the significance of our experiences, but it is rather to put them in their proper place. It is to drive us to Christ's presence and grace and to actually give us the ballast we need to walk through those experiences. Just as God says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then third and last, which I hinted at last week, but I want to touch on a little bit more. Welcoming sinners is not the same as affirming sin. God welcomes everyone to him, and so should we. God doesn't require us to change first, to get our act together, to look a certain way, to come to him. He just invites us to come. God is ready and willing to draw us into his embrace if we will come. And yet this doesn't mean God affirms everything about us when we do come. He, he doesn't love us because we are so lovable, perfect just as we are. In fact, the very opposite. He loves us because he is loving and because Jesus died for our sins. And then when we come to him, he, he begins to change us. He, he welcomes us. He receives us. He, he has great affection and love for us. He delights in us, but he begins to change us, changing our desires, convicting us of sin, giving us strength to fight against our sin, causing us to love him more than our sin. And in this process, Christ is our bigger supporter, right? Sometimes we might imagine that every time we sin and, and, and fail and struggle, that Christ's love kind of diminishes, that Christ's presence gets a little bit farther away. No, but when we struggle with sin, if we are his, he is fighting for us. He is with us. He is cheering us on, as, as one of the songs we didn't sing today, but sing another time. He's like cheering us on along the way. And so all of this should inform and guide how we are as a church. A biblical church must be welcoming, 
and must not be affirming. To be affirming of everything in someone, ourselves included, is to effectively deny the need for the gospel. Yeah, thanks, Jesus, but no thanks. We, we got this. It's to rid glory from God and to give glory to man alone. We must continue to stand firm on biblical convictions concerning sexuality in a world that is increasingly hostile towards them. Um, despite what is often said, it is possible to love people and not affirm everything about them. We do this every day in relationships. If you're going to have a relationship of any depth, you must love them and not affirm everything about them. It, I mean, once you get to know someone very well, you quickly don't affirm everything about them yourself included. We don't need to accept the world's definition of love and acceptance. And yet at the same time, we must be ready to welcome any and all who would come, ready to share the compassion and the grace and the patience and the long-suffering and the tenderheartedness of God with them. Um, more than that, I would say we should be willing, as Jesus did, to get out of our comfort zones, to leave here and go Extend that love to others where they are at and invite them in and to share the love of Christ with them. The world doesn't need a church with bold convictions, but without a humble love and compassion for sinners and sufferers. Likewise, the church doesn't need a church that is welcoming and affirming, but lacking any convictions of God's design and good purposes and for human identity. So we, may we, as a church, display this in our words, in our, in our actions, in the type of community that we are, display that God's plans for us and for his church are good. Not, but, I mean, by both clinging to biblical convictions, but also in our hearts, as we looked at last week, having the humble love for others that God had for us. Let's pray.